Welcome to the Pacific Spine and Pain Society podcast for residents, fellows, and new attendings. A casual conversation, like the ones had after a presentation, in the floral suite, or in the clinic, designed to give you insight about interventional spine, pain medicine, neuromodulation, regenerative medicine, and minimally invasive spine techniques. And now, here's your host, Dr. Daniel Orlovich. All right, PSPS listeners, very excited. Today, we have Dr. Einar Odestad from Stanford University. He's going to talk to you about peripheral nerve stim. Dr. Odestad, thank you so much for joining us. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your setup, and what interests you in the pain space. Hi, Dan. First of all, I want to say thank you so much for the invite. It's my pleasure to participate in this podcast series put on by Pacific Spine and Pain Society. I think it's a fantastic resource for all the participants, and we certainly enjoy putting together talks as well. A little bit about myself. I'm originally from Norway, but moved to Texas when I was fairly young, 10 years old. So more or less, I grew up in the U.S. medical system. Went to Baylor College of Medicine in Texas, and then decided to move to California to try some uh, different type of environment. And I've basically been in California ever since. I did residency and uh, fellowship at Stanford, where I uh, continue to work. At Stanford, I'm currently a clinical associate professor and um, the medical director of the Stanford Comprehensive Interdisciplinary Pain Program as well as the acute pain service for around the last decade or so. In terms of my current practice at this point, about 25% is spent in that acute pain arena, taking care of hospitalized patients, cancer patients, kind of the whole gamut of acute and chronic pain. And then the other 75% will be a more normal outpatient chronic pain practice, which is where I see the folks who are frequently candidates for peripheral nerve stimulation. Wonderful. Sounds like a lot in your plate, and I'm, I'm sure you're enjoying it. Tell us, you mentioned the keyword peripheral nerve stim. Tell us a little bit about a memorable patient that you might have that you put a peripheral nerve stim in. Yeah, so actually, I can remember one of my first patients. So peripheral nerve stimulation probably been around for about three, four years. So three years ago, a patient, I'll call her patient K, came into me with bilateral foot pain or bilateral great foot pain. And she had a very interesting story and that this was a result of a myelopathy going back 10 years after a drug reaction that had more or less improved over the course of time. And she was essentially at one point wheelchair bound, but now had regained pretty much all motor function and had a little bit of residual sensory neuropathy, or I shouldn't say a little, she had a very, very significant life debilitating sensory neuropathy to the great toe. She responded 100% to digital nerve blocks to the toe and would always go away for six hours, but then return. Then I tried to block the tibial nerve. And by the way, the, the digital nerve blocks was what she'd been doing for, I think, two or three years as an outside physician, basically getting these toe blocks once uh, every week or so, just for hundreds of injections. And I didn't think that digital nerve would be a great target for me. So I went more proximal and I blocked the, the tibial nerve. And she had, once again, a very profound, but very temporary response, no long-term steroid effect. So I decided to move towards the peripheral nerve stimulator system. And I wasn't very experienced at the time. I chose to implant a temporary stimulator just to see how it would work as her, her pain was more of a scary diagnosis as opposed to being more of a pure CRPS type of diagnosis. So I put in a temporary nerve stimulator and she had great relief for the two months of the treatment. However, once I pulled those leads out, the pain quickly returned and she asked me to put them in one more time. So I, I tried a second time, put the leads in. She still did great with the treatment. And this time I believe that the lead, one of the leads fractured and she lost the stimulation and the other ones stayed in for the full time and had to be pulled. In either case, she did great with the stimulation. She asked me for what's the next step. So I moved from the temporary stimulator to a permanent stimulator. This one also worked just as well. She had great pain relief. 
But unfortunately, with this one, she developed a skin reactivity, a, a terrible rash, likely to the uh, adhesive on the on the sticky uh, battery patch. And I remember seeing her skin turn red and, and become a little bit thickened. But she still continued using the device because the pain relief was so significant. Uh, despite this really rather rather ugly looking skin in the pictures she sent me, and she wouldn't stop using it. So I then moved on, and most recently, this is about a year ago, to a third type of permanent performance stimulator. And once again, she had fantastic results with the implant, and this time she did not have that external patch to react to. But the results were, were once again fantastic. So my takeaway was really that as long as I could get the electricity going towards her target pain problem, she really did a lot better. And in some ways, that was a very successful patient story that drove home the usefulness of peripheral nerve stimulation to me. Nice, nice. And I'm sure you've implanted many more patients since then. Walk us through, Dr. Otisette, a little bit. How do you think, you know, PNS works? So the caveat with all our neuromodulation techniques, spinal cord or peripheral, is, is we always say we don't really know how it works. But I think I can kind of come up with some, some theories of what I see in my patients' habits. Now, if we look at the basic science studies, we can talk about things like changes in the neurotransmitters at the level of the spinal cord. You know, we'll, we'll see a general decrease in excitatory, increase in inhibitory neurotransmitters. We talk about increasing the activity of the descending inhibitory system. We may be reducing some of the peripheral ectopic transmission. So overall, multiple mechanisms, but I think what they have in common is that they dial up the volume of the nerve signal more or less. And that's essentially how I describe it to my patients. When that nerve is injured, the volume obvious goes all the way to the right to a 10 out of 10, and that nerve is simply sending too much electricity up the chain. And too much electricity up the chain causes the upstream effects. That's what drives the central sensitization, the spreading of the pain, and the CRPS type of phenomenon. Now, what I think is different about the spinal cord versus peripheral nervous system, if I think about about this patient having an injury to a nerve in the grip toe, one of these digital nerves. That neuroma force there, it's always sending electricity to the spinal cord. The spinal cord over the next two or three months becomes really sensitized. I can imagine almost a glass that initially was, was half full with the liquid glutamate sitting at the, that level in the, in the lumbar spine. And as this peripheral neuroma is shooting this never-ending pathologic C5 nociception up to the spinal cord, that glass sim simply fills with glutamate. And once it's too full of glutamate, the glutamate more or less just spills over the sides and then starts entering the axonal pathways of the surrounding neurons. And more or less, this is how I, I imagine that my sensory signal spreads outside of the dermatome in CRPS. It's just the neurotransmitter spilling out in, at the level of the spinal cord. And then if I try to palliate this, this central excitation with spinal cord stimulation, I'm putting the leads higher up in the epidural space in the thoracic spine. Typically what I find in my patients is if I, if I can put the lead in the right spot, I can get paresthesia coverage or, or non-paresthesia techniques even as long as the leads are in the right spot, they tend to work okay for certainly months, uh, certainly a, a year or two, but over the course of time, I have found patients start to lose efficacy over the course of time. We do talk about spinal cord tachyphylaxis to electricity. Peripheral nerve stimulation, I think, is very different. So we go back to that picture of that neuroma and the great toe sending electricity up to the spinal cord and the spinal cord being, being revved up and then sending that signal up to the brain. With peripheral nerve stimulation, I'm putting the electrode on the nerve before it ever reaches the spinal cord. So I think of this as replacing that pathologic C-fiber nociception with a more almost medical-grade type of electricity. 
And I made the point earlier that, you know, I don't necessarily think a, a very specific waveform is super, super important, or at least not at this step. I think as long as you can get electricity on the right nerve and send it up the pathway, the patient perceives that as being pleasant. We more or less replace that incoming C5 nociception with more of a tickle of those A beta and A delta fibers. What I think is happening is as the spinal cord is seeing this more normal type of electricity, this glass that's full of glutamate that's spilling over starts emptying. It goes back to half full again. And what we see then is that peripheral neuropathic pain that was expanding outside of the dermatome. You had hyperalgesia and allodynia. We start to see that recede and go back to now the pain is only, only back in that original nerve, for example. And you don't really see that with the spinal cord stimulator. Once again, with spinal cord stimulators, I feel like they work great in the beginning and then they tend to work less well over time. With the peripheral nerve stimulators I put in, they tend to work better and better over the course of time. And most specifically is, is that phenomenon where the patient really likes the, the paresthesia sensation and when they're buzzing their nerve, they have pain relief. So they're buzzing their nerve 10, 12 hours a day. And in some cases, like the patient from my example, 24 hours a day, that's why she had a terrible skin rash because you have pain relief when you're buzzing the nerve. But as the patients use their device over the course of weeks, that time just seems to decrease. Now they're using it for six hours a day. And the spinal cord stimulator tends to work less well over time, and the peripheral nerve stimulator, in my experience, tends to work a little bit better over the course of time. What I find is, in the beginning, my patients like to use the stimulator 24 hours a day. And in, in the case of the patient I gave as, a, as an example in the beginning, and that was one of the main reasons she developed this terrible skin rash is because and she had good pain relief when she was actively stimulating the nerve. And that's what I see sometimes in the beginning of treatment. However, over the course of time, maybe after two to four weeks, uh, I see the patients using it for six hours, eight hours, maybe 10 hours a day. And then when they turn it off, they still have a little bit of residual pain relief. It still lasts for three, four, five hours. Then maybe when I get to the five, six, seven month mark, then they may be using it almost like a medication for a couple of hours in the morning and a couple of hours in the evening and they get pretty good residual pain relief. And now at this point, I have some patients that are out almost three years, and uh, they essentially don't have to use the device anymore. They don't need it prophylactically. They don't use it daily at baseline. However, when I ask them about taking it out, and, and most of them like to keep it mostly as a safety mechanism. And specifically what the last patient told me is, she's worried that if she bumps her, her elbow against a, a door, has some sort of trauma and this terrible CRPS pain flares again, it's just nice to know that she can take her for a sticky patch, you put it over the arm, and then that chronic pain will be relieved, hopefully, once again. Nice. Yeah, very reassuring to have it in there, just in case. Tell us, what kind of diagnoses do you think of when you're considering putting in the PNS? Yeah, so with the peripheral nerve stimulator, we, we typically think of neuropathic types of pain. So in the beginning, most of the evidence was actually looking at the hemiplegic shoulder pain. And then we had some evidence moving into amputation pain and then more or less total body mononeuropathy. So this is some of the literature from Tim Deere, from Chris Gilmore, that's been coming out. So I would say treating a mononeuropathy with peripheral nerve stimulation is probably fairly well established at this point. And probably any nerve around the body, if the patient responds to block, they'll respond to peripheral nerve stimulation treatment. The newer thought I have in that arena, though, relates to musculoskeletal pain. So we've really, haven't really thought about peripheral nerve stimulation for that somatic type of musculoskeletal pain as being something that would work. However, 
I've had a few patients where they really just weren't candidates for replacements due to disease. A couple of particular examples is a patient needed shoulder replacement with really bone-on-bone humerus in, in the glenoid fossa. And this was a guy with congenital absence of the legs and some other abnormalities in his elbows. And so he really was dependent on, on this shoulder for mobility. And he really did not want to undergo a one-year rehab for a shoulder replacement. So I tried to put in a suprascapular nerve simulator, and it actually worked. He had never had surgery before. He had no evidence of CRPS. He didn't really have any allodynia, but he had good pain relief from the stimulator. So then I repeated that process with a few other patients and some other colleagues around the country have also demonstrated similar types of results where peripheral nerve stimulation has worked for what we traditionally have considered musculoskeletal pain. So why is that? Well, the, the way I think about it is what's priming the central nervous system really is that persistent incoming C-fiber nociception. Uh, so when you're always sending that electricity through the spinal cord, we get amplification of the signal and we get chronic pain. I don't think it makes a big difference if the reason for that is damage specifically to a nerve itself, i.e. the mononeuropathy or post-surgical nerve pain, but it can happen if that musculoskeletal system is, is significantly damaged as well. So I think when that shoulder is, is bone on bone, really end stage, we're probably activating those peripheral C-fiber nerve endings all the time, just through, through daily life. And when that shoulder hurts enough, we will end up seeing the same type of central process happening with that that we do with the neuropathic pains. So as a result, I think the peripheral nerve stimulator can work fairly well for some of these older folks who probably should have uh, joint replacements. Maybe they're not the greatest surgical candidate. So I think at least a trial of PNS has become reasonable for those as well. Nice. I like the way you talked about the mechanism because you're right. No matter how the signal gets to the spinal cord, you know, and winds up and you get the central sensitization, if it's musculoskeletal, if it's neuropathic, it makes sense mechanistically to think of those conceptually as together. You led us into my next question, and that is basically, who do you feel is a good candidate for peripheral nerve stim? Yeah, so originally the classic thing was kind of the, the CRPS type of, of patient. I was really looking at those neuropathy folks. And then I moved towards more of the chronic MSK pain over time. That stated, the key thing they had in mind is a patient respond to that diagnostic nerve block. Uh, one of the big benefits with spinal cord stimulation is that it's one of the only surgeries that exist where you get to try it before you buy it. Uh, we do a spinal cord stimulator trial and we ensure the patient is happy with the results for you know three to five days before we do the permanent implant. So I think that's a, a huge benefit with spinal cord stimulation. We don't really have that benefit quite yet with peripheral nerve stimulation. So why is that? Well, in some cases, once you've gotten to the step that you're ready for to do the trial, you're, you're essentially finished with the surgery. So you might as well just put that extra little piece of lead under the skin and complete it. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to leave it hanging out for two weeks just so you can replace it and use one more electrode at a later point in time. And I say that because the performer of procedure is so much less invasive than the spinal cord procedure. The spinal cord procedure, you're making big incisions to put in batteries. We don't really worry about that so much with the PMS. So without the, the kind of the, the concept of always doing a trial before we do an implant, I've really nailed down the concept of, of doing a careful diagnostic lock. And so I want to see low volume, high concentration. I want to know confirmed loss of function. So numbness somewhere, a weakness somewhere, depending on what the nervous block, and some sort of time concordant reduction in pain. So I, I don't want to see a, a sciatic nerve block with 30 cc's and the patient was maybe a little bit numb. That's not yeah. very reassuring. I'm going to see a sciatic nerve block with maybe 10 cc's and the patient kind of had a confirmed foot drop and they said the pain was 
80, 90, or 100% gone for six hours and then came roaring back. That's the, the perfect patient for a peripheral nerve stimulator. The other corollary to that is with the nerve blocks is where do you block a nerve? So this is a, a little bit of an interesting concept. We had Dr. Richard North come visit at Stanford and I still keep telling the story because it impressed me so much around a year and a half ago. And we were talking about peripheral nerve stimulation and he brought up a paper he wrote, I think, in 1996, where essentially he and his colleagues took patients with lumbar radiculopathy pain and blocked that nerve either at the nerve root, so at the epidural selected nerve root level, at the facet joint, and so posteriorly in the distribution of the dorsal ramus, but not in the distribution of the spinal nerve at all, and on the sciatic nerve, i.e. they injected you know, far away from the spine, and, and finally a subcube injection. And what they found was the patients that had the epidural block had about 80% pain relief, which makes a lot of sense. But the patients with the facet blocks and the sciatic blocks, which were not at the level of the spine, still had around 50, 60, 70% pain relief. So you didn't get the home runs, and you didn't get the 100% pain relief when you block more distally on that, that pathologic nerve, but you still had some pain relief. So why is that? Well, if I think about the nerve as, as being a, a series of tubes or wires, each one that can individually carry some electricity, and one of those tubes is broken, and that's where the neuroma is, is collected, the overall amount of electricity sent up that tube is what the spinal cord registers. So I think if I go in and I block 80% of the tubes, even if the pathologic one is awake, I'm still reducing the overall transmission of that extra potential pathway to a little bit of a degree, and the patient can pick that up. So based on that, I think that if I think someone has a sciatic nerve lesion, but I can't access the sciatic nerve high in the pelvis at a good location for a peripheral nerve stimulator, I may still do a sciatic nerve block in the back of the thigh. It would be two or three centimeters distal from the pathology, but the back of the thigh is a beautiful location to place a peripheral nerve stimulator. So I may, I may do that and still get pretty good results. The other way of thinking about this is if nerve blocks block distal to lesion can still give partial benefit. And if you really scratch your head, you could probably, probably come up with a few patients in the past where you did these nerve blocks and you were kind of surprised that they did better. But if you do these nerve blocks and the patients have benefit, then I think if you put electricity on that same nerve in the same location, they should have even more benefit. Because clearly, if I'm putting electricity distal to some sort of nerve lesion and the patient is able to feel that paresthesia in their brain, then by definition, that electricity is traveling up that axonal pathway past the DRG, past the dural dorsal columns, through the thalamus, and through your somatosensory cortex. So wherever we, we may imagine that peripheral nerve stimulation exerts its effects, it should all be tickled by a lead placed anywhere on that pathway. Nice. I like that. And, and how do you kind of explain this concept to the patients? Do you use those words like you're tickling the nerve or, you know, the glutamate is a toxic thing overflowing kind of walk me through kind of if, if you were talking to a patient, kind of how you pitch this to them. Yeah. And that just kind of came out of my, my mouth because I'm so used to talking about that glass that's half full of, or half empty in the spinal cord. Most patients seem to understand that. And then if you talk to the patients and you delve into their, their history, what you find is often they'll recognize that this has happened to themselves. What I mean by that. So a typical story is a patient comes in with ankle pain and it's just ankle pain. Everything kind of hurts. I ask him the point, you know, it's the top, it's the bottom, it's, it's left, it's right, everything hurts. I ask them about their pain history and, you know, they tell me about eight ankle surgeries. So I say, okay, hold up, hold up. What was your pain? after the first ankle surgery, or, or even before that first ankle surgery. But usually they're having the first ankle surgery because of some musculoskeletal problem. 
So the current pain syndrome usually starts after that first surgery. And then they may say, well, you know, in the beginning, the pain was on top of the foot. But then I had, you know, two more surgeries and eight injections and four stimulator trials. And now it's just the pain is everywhere. If you do a good job of, of dialing back, digging into that patient's history, the patient will usually tell you where the pain started. Where was that original nerve injury? The pain can be, can be big. It can be confusing now, three years later. But in the beginning, three years ago, you know, it was really just painful on the top of the foot with, with allodynia and hyperalgesia there. So when I see that story, then I can go look at just the superficial perineal nerve. And sometimes I'll see a big swelling in it. And when I scan that nerve that I think is a target, very frequently that the patients will say, yeah, you know, that, that feels a bit concordant. That I feel some zingers going to where it hurt. And then if I tap on that nerve where I see it swell up, they feel less concordant as well. But then the most amazing thing is when I block that nerve, all the pain goes away. And not just the pain to the top of the foot, but, you know, if this is a full-blown CRPS and they hurt from, from knee down, then even that pain at the knee goes away if I, if I block the superficial perineal down at the foot. So the key thing is do a little bit of detective work, I guess is the way to describe it. And then you can dial it down. Yeah. After you do that detective work, or while you're doing it, rather, the peripheral nerve stem, how do you conceptualize it in terms of the treatment algorithm? Okay, yeah. So the treatment algorithm for nerve pain has basically been the number one question for every single pain fellow I've trained since 2009. And I'm still not sure I have a best answer for it. But, you know, more or less, here, here's the approach. So as an anesthesiologist, as an ultrasonographer, I feel like I can pretty much take anyone's pain away for six to eight hours at a time. Really, no matter where it is in the body, there, there should be a peripheral nerve that I can find and block and provide that temporary pain relief. The question is always, what's next? So our, our first inclination is to grab that steroid, put a little catalog or dexamethasone around that nerve. Dexamethasone will fairly routinely give you, you know, two or three times duration of actual block effect. You might see numbness and weakness and last for a couple of days sometimes. The particulate steroids may kick that out for three or four days, but ultimately the block will wear off. And then we hope for, for the magical steroid effect after the block wears off. And, you know, sure, sure, maybe maybe half the folks have 20, 30, 50% pain relief and that lasts for, for, for a few weeks or, or maybe even a couple of months. And the truth is some nerves, occipital, for example, tarsal tunnel, carpal tunnel, or lateral femocutaneous, some classic locations for nerves tend to be compressed to respond a bit better than others to steroids. But generally, steroids aren't fixing our chronic pain neuropathic problems. So what's next? Pulsed radio frequency, 2012 to 2014, probably did a few cases of pulsed radio frequency. For some reason, we had an easier time getting approval at Stanford than in private practice, so I actually got lots of referrals from outside docs for this as well. It worked. Pulsed radio frequency you know, unquestionably helped. At least 50% of my patients get, get at least 50% better. But, you know, I didn't really get the home runs like you do with a block still. And for the folks who had really severe persistent pain, the pulsed radio frequency never seemed to work. But 100%, once in a while, I would really get this, this home run. People were flying from out of state for the pulse rating frequency procedure. I couldn't believe it, but they certainly thought it worked great for them. Next, radio frequency ablation. So we could get approval for these. We turn off the heat, try to ablate the nerve. The big problem I found is in the periphery, it just doesn't work that well. So trying to burn the, the medial branches, lateral branches, the geniculars, the articular branches, especially using, using bigger probes and needles, I think works okay. But if I'm trying to kill a perineal nerve, superficial perineal nerve, lateral femoral nerve, certainly these nerves that are abnormal that I see swell up, I put the needle on the nerve, I visualize the nerve burning under ultrasound, and then I take the probe out and the nerve just doesn't, doesn't die. 
for a majority of these patients, I would say they, they probably had a little episode of neuritis, but very rarely did they come back with discrete numbness and the expected distribution and pain relief. So I kind of stopped and moved away from those true ablations and, and for the somatic peripheral nerves. And then next, probably 2006, 14 to 16, was cryoablation. And cryoablation took over for the pulse radio frequency a, a little bit, and it worked okay. So with radio frequency ablation, we're, we're kind of killing the nerves, scorching the tissues, creating scars. With cryoablation, we're still killing the nerves, but you're not really scorching the tissues, you're creating scars. So I think of cryo as ablating the nerve internally, but leaving the epineurium, perineurium intact. So you end up with a nerve block that lasts for three to six months until the nerve simply grows back down its own pathway and reconnects to the end organ. Cryo worked, worked okay. I could get people numb and they would have basically recreate the feeling of the nerve block for three, four, five months at a time. But just the cryo procedure itself was tended to be a little bit painful. And once again, people just got tired of coming back every three, four to five months. So then I moved to the peripheral nerve stimulator, more or less in around 2017. And that's where I have now ended up. So the way I look at these patients now is if I do that diagnostic block and they have pretty good pain relief, usually my, my second option is going to be to offer them a pulsed radio frequency neuromodulation again. But I don't think of PRF as being an ablation anymore. Now I'm offering them this PRF procedure almost in some ways as a stem trial. So what I found over the course of time is probably what was happening is the patients who responded well to pulse radio frequency correlated with the patients who didn't quite have that chronic pain look to them. They hadn't had the chronic pain for as long. So if you came in with three months of neurology parasthetica, you'd probably do great with pulse direct. But if you came in with fibromyalgia and migraines and 15 years of neurology parasthetica status post surgery, probably you weren't going to respond to the pulse radio frequency. So because of that, when I do that diagnostic nerve block these days, if the patient is someone who I think has had younger chronic pain, I think they'll be much more likely to respond to that pulse direct. And I at least want to try it once. Then if they've had pain for maybe a bit longer, up to a year, here I'm thinking that the temporary nerve stimulator may be a reasonable thing to try. Probably the pulse RF, you know, do that. It may not be sufficient. I'll probably have to repeat that a few times. But a temporary nerve stimulator, in some ways, is like doing that pulse radio frequency treatment every single day for 60 days. And I think maybe 60 days is sufficient to reverse some of the central sensitization that's happened after whatever is causing this neuropathic problem to reverse itself. And then finally, if the people who've had this chronic pain for longer than a year, for, you know, five years, I'll typically just move straight towards the permanent implant with the thought that I'll probably end up there anyways. Now, caveat to all that, I always give the patients all the options and I tell them the pros and cons of each, and they get to choose how aggressive they can be. And I apologize, I forgot to finish my algorithm. The step after the PNS is going to the, the spinal cord for SCS, DRG, or intrathecal. So I do offer those options as well very early on, even during that new patient visit and talk about the risks and benefits. And just the majority of, of the time, the patients will tend to go towards the more peripheral types of procedures. But certainly there's some cases where the, the pain is more widespread or bilateral, where the central stimulation simply makes sense. And I just let the patients know that in those cases. Nice. Dr. Oda said that was wonderful, very complete, comprehensive, and I like how you tied in kind of the chronicity of their pain as well to really individualize it. Tell us, what kind of words of wisdom do you have for the residents out there, the fellows, the newer attendings who would like to learn more or would like to gain your insight about the, your expertise in the peripheral nerve stem space? Learn to love CRPS. It is 
my most hated and at the same time favorite diagnosis. So a CRPS in fellowship was very ungratifying. A CRPS meant a prescription to physical therapy and three sets of stellate ganglion blocks, three sets of lumbar sympathetics, and you know some sort of modification of their usually high-dose opioids or very complicated neuropathic pain regimens on the new patient visit. This is usually what, what I would see. So complicated patients, psychosocial comorbidity, hard to dive into, and pretty unsatisfying treatments that all work very temporarily. As mentioned earlier, detective work. So these days, I, I love CRPS patients because what I usually do is I undiagnose the CRPS. I do that detective work I mentioned. Go into their history, figure out when their pain actually started, go back to their first surgery, not their fifth surgery, and use that history and do a careful physical exam. Try to tap on all these peripheral nerves, take a look at them with ultrasound, see if you can find the main culprit. I just realized that everyone who has CRPS, it's always CRPS2. CRPS1, this means you haven't looked hard enough to figure out which nerve it is, or the nerve is so small it doesn't have a discrete name. But if someone has all the, the signs and symptoms of CRPS, there is a culprit in there, and you have the tools available with the ultrasound and local anesthetics to, to find it, diagnose it, and then with PNS to treat it. And the ultimate result here is in some ways cure of CRPS. And this is a patient that no longer needs to use their stimulator device, and they no longer need to worry about carrying their pills with them when they, when they go out on their daily routine. These are the wins that are possible if you do your due diligence and figure out why the patient hurts. I love it. Yeah, that detective work, very important. Dr. Otis, had anything else you'd like to tell our listeners to check out? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Check out Pacific Spine and Pain Society. I do know there's going to be a, a workshop in Vegas coming up in April. Hopefully, I'll, I'll be released and be able to attend that. And also want to give a shout out to the World Academy of Pain Medicine United, WAPMU.org. We have a workshop in Dallas in March, and I'll have one in San Francisco in May and more throughout the years. So hopefully 2021 will be the time that whoever wishes to once again come see us at one of these workshops actually get some hands-on experience with both ultrasound and peripheral nerve stimulators, we'll be able to come do so. Lovely. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Otis. really appreciate it. You got it. Take care. Thank you for listening. We want to continue this engagement. Please visit the PSPS website, join the email newsletter, watch the webinars, or attend the conference.